0: Hey, good to see everybody. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, a print one, or an electronic one, why don't you turn to Hebrews chapter 9? <laughs> yeah, a reliable one. You know, you can get that Bible. There is a Bible also that's completely made out of plastic, so you can take it in the rain, you can take it in the shower, it can't be destroyed, it, uh, but you still need to open the pages. All right. Well, we have uh, been in Hebrews for, man, for a bunch of weeks now. We are right in this middle section that is, and I think I've said this a few times, it's full of details and it's all about the sacrificial system and the priesthood and all this imagery from the Old Testament to. All meant to help the the readers and us make better sense of this better way that Christ has has brought. And what Christ is bringing and what we should really be entering into. And here in chapter 9, we come and we're talking about the temple or the, the tent. He talks about the tent, okay, this tabernacle. And again, drawing on this Old Testament imagery that, depending on your familiarity with the Old Testament, you're either... Um, really familiar, kind of, or you're not really that familiar with it at all. But somehow it is meant to um, help us understand Christ at a deeper level. And so this morning what we're going to do is look at parts of chapter 9 and really look at two things, okay? Because, again, you can get lost in some of the details, but we're going to look at two things. Um, God's presence in our lives and God's provision for us, all right? God's presence and his provision And let's begin by reading verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. Those verses say this, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. That's just the first part of of verse 2 there. Uh, But a tent was prepared. So God has always had this vision and this desire to be with us, and he actually is going to use the the tent or the tabernacle to help us understand that more, all right? So when you look at the the story uh, in the scriptures, you see obviously it starts in the Garden of Eden, right? It starts with this um, amazing story of God creating a garden. Now think about it, God who existed in eternity, who was perfectly holy, perfectly content in all that he was doing, chose at some moment for uh, maybe even reasons that are slightly still mysterious for us, chose to create a garden and chose to create Adam and Eve and put them in that garden so that he could enjoy close relationship with them and be with them and it talks about them you know walking in the evening you know with him and him coming down to to meet with them and this this imagery of God being close is seen in the garden and it's also all the way in the end if you look at revelation all the way in the last chapter of revelation the last few verses it talk about it talks about this imagery again of God being with his people in their presence, and, and it even uses this language of, like, being face-to-face with them. So you get this imagery of, like, Adam and Eve, and in the book of Revelation, of, of God and his people being together where there's, there's no shame, there's total acceptance, there's total love that is experienced, and it is the pinnacle, it is the design and the intent of what God always had. But we, we know as well in the story at the garden that there's something that, that makes a break. It's, it's sin that makes that difficult, right? Sin enters into the equation, Adam and Eve both sin, and this perfect harmony that God uh, wanted, this perfect presence that God has always wanted, is broken And it's not the same. It's not what God is intending. And so, throughout the scriptures here, we see that God finds ways to be with his people. All right. So, we look at like the tent, we look at the tabernacle, and we see that God is is creating this space where he can reside literally at the center of his people. And so, you have a description from Exodus uh, I think it's like Exodus 20 all the way to the end of Exodus, this description of all the details of the tabernacle and, and, you know, what it's supposed to be made of and how they're supposed to put it together. And in their midst then is God. And we just read those verses, but look at Exodus 40 uh, again. Verse 38, it just describes, this is kind of like the end result, okay? So 20 chapters of describing what the tent is supposed to look like and all the purposes behind every instrument that is in there. And it ends with this, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So there is God again coming down into their midst. You could almost picture it like this image here with these two circles where you have um, the temple is this place. um, Next slide there. The temple is is this place where heaven and earth come together. Okay, where the temple is where God actually resides. He is close. His presence is felt. It's actually seen in a cloud by day, and it's seen in fire by night. And so God gets to do what he's always wanted to do. He's still this heavenly being who is transcendent and different, but he's close to his people. His presence is literally seen and felt. And so we see that the temple is kind of drawing this image, and the the tent turns into this uh, moving tent that they take with them, and ultimately it resides in Jerusalem and is, is made into this uh, beautiful temple that Solomon builds where God again resides among his people. But moving from that, we see that when we look at the person of Jesus, when we look at Christ, that Christ himself is this as well. Christ is God in the flesh. And so in John chapter one, when John is trying to um, describe and explain what it is that happened when Jesus came, he puts it this way. In John chapter one, verse one, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then if you go all the way down to verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And that word there literally means becoming flesh means it tabernacled among us. Okay, it became like this tabernacle image. So you've got the same imagery here of heaven and earth coming together in the person of Jesus. You've got this presence again, this, this same idea that is found in the, in the Garden of Eden, that's found in the tent and the temple is found in Jesus. And then ultimately, as believers, it finds, Christ finds his residency in us, right? This new temple that we were just reading some scriptures about, that he is now indwelt in us. So, so God is passionate about presence. And if we've learned anything during this pandemic, we've, we've learned that presence is important, isn't it? Like, one of the worst punishments that a society, that our society can give to people, is to put them in solitary confinement, right? A lot of people even say that that's inhumane. To lock a person up in a box, essentially, by themselves, totally alone, is the worst that our society can do. And so, we, even in our weakness, though, we... um, I don't know, maybe it's too strong to say that we long for independence and we long to be on our own sometimes. Um, This is not the uh, position that God is in, okay? So we do, sometimes we've done um, in our house where, and I've done this a few times where it's like, I just want to go for a walk by myself. Okay, we go for a lot of walks as a family, but there's been times where I'm like, I'm going to go for a walk by myself. And sometimes during this pandemic, it's been like, I need to go for a walk by myself or things bad things may happen in this home, right? It's like, get me away. That's not how God works. God actually wants presence. God is not looking for opportunities to get away from us. He's actually looking for opportunities to get near to us, for us to experience nearness with him. And so this idea of the presence of God coming here in the form of a a tent and and ultimately coming in the form of Jesus is not just a um, incidental like side note to what's happening here. That's actually like the bedrock of what this text is getting at is that God wants to be near us. And so do you believe the idea that God wants to actually be with you? Do you actually like take that in and take that to heart? Or is it something that is maybe easier to think about in terms of an idea, but maybe not in terms of a reality. And I've found that even with this, um, in this season, you know, it's uh, we're looking forward to summertime already. I don't know if you're looking forward to summertime, right? It was wickedly cold this morning as I walked in my face, froze to one one location. It was like frozen shut when I got here. Um, I was like, oh, summertime, you know. But we were thinking about summer and making plans, and I've been finding in the back of my head, just because of like, pandemic, and I'm like, are those things like gonna happen? Should we even be planning? You know, like everything has a question mark to it, you know? It's like, is this really gonna happen? Should we make those reservations? I really want it to be true, but is it gonna happen? And maybe that's your experience, even with this idea of the, the presence of God, and of God wanting to be with you, and God wanting to know you. Maybe there's like a questioning Maybe there's even like a recoiling because you're like, is that true? Is that what God is really like? Is that even what like this is saying? And can I just like remind you? It is what it's saying. God wants to be near you. God wants to know you. He wants to be close to you. And the things that we, we use, the excuses we use to kind of drive a wedge in that truth are things that are not found in Scripture. And so this text specifically, and I probably said this every week, this text and this book is meant to remind the believers of these truths because they're like tempted to, to go the opposite direction. And so he's using these imagery, these images from the Old Testament to say, this is what God has been doing the whole time. And here's the full reality of it. It's fully seen in Christ. But if we read this chapter... We also see that there is, um, there's definitely a sense of like some separation here, right? There's definitely a sense of like, there's there's some division in a sense. There's something that separates us. And as the tent is even described here, you get a sense of um, God is in one place and we're in another. So let's look at verses 1 through 5 again, or let me just start in verse 2. And we'll see this description of the temple, all right? It says this, For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant above it were the cherubim and the glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak in detail so here the author says here's what it kind of looked like you know here's the tent and I I put a, an image for us just to see exactly what he's talking about okay so he's describing this tent that the nation of Israel would have made and they would have taken, they would have put it up as they were in a new place. And then when they were moving, they would have taken it all with them. And you can see, um, there's the, the altar and, and the brazen laver, and that's where they would have done their sacrifices. And then there's the tent itself, right? The temple. And if you zoom inside the temple, then you see that, okay, this is like a single room that is then divided into two parts, Okay, you got the front part where the um, priests would do different work, and the candles would be lit, and the bread would be—all these things were symbols. Okay, and they were all pictures to help the nation understand God themselves. And then behind the veil was the ark. Okay, behind the veil, and that um, veil—history says that it was like four inches thick. Okay, it was like super thick, like. Carpety veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the front section, okay, from the holy place. And the high priest would only go once a year into the Holy of Holies, okay? One time a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, okay, would be the only time that the high priest is going in there. And he would go in there for this one time to make sacrifice for the nation. And so in the week leading up to that a Day of Atonement, the high priest would do everything possible to stay um, ceremonially clean and not, you know, have any kind of blemish or sin on his life. When the when the new temple was built, they would actually the high priest would actually live around the temple so that like no bad things would happen to him because remember he is the representative for the nation. He is the guy going in once a year for the nation. And he would, on the Day of Atonement, there's multiple times where he would wash himself. He'd put on these like new white clean linens and these garments. And then he would go and he would bring like a bull for, uh, not for the sins of the people, actually. He'd bring the bull for his own sins. Okay, remember we learned about that? I think it was last week or maybe even two weeks ago. There was, the high priest had to go in, but he was sinful himself. And so he makes a sacrifice for himself. Then he would bring a sacrifice offering, a ram, for the nation. But then there would be another two goats, male goats, that he would bring. One of them would be sacrificed, and one of them would be let go, okay? They would do, like, cast lots in the beginning. One gets sacrificed for the sins of the nation, and one actually they would um, release it outside the camp. And the intent was that it would would leave and it would never come back, okay? And, And, like, history and tradition would say that a couple people would actually, like, give it an escort. Okay, give, it a, give this goat an escort out and send it off into nature so that it would not come back to camp. And it was meant to symbolize our sins being literally cast out and never being seen again. All this work, all this effort, just one day a week for this nation, for God's people, Kind of makes you think, okay, there's there's something going on here, right? There's some there's some distinction here of what's happening, and all this work, and it didn't do what the people needed it to do. It wasn't everything that they wanted it to do, want what they needed it to do. And verse nine in the chapter here actually helps us understand that. Okay, so. There's sacrifices that are made. There's atonement that is made once a year for the nation and for the priest. But look at verse 9 of chapter 9. It says, um, which is symbolic for the present age. That's kind of connected to verse 8. But then it says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They cannot do everything that needs to be done. All right? There is like all... You can read, read the verses previous to that. There's all kinds of rituals. There's all kinds of duties that the priest was going to do. And there's all kinds of, you know, steps that needed to be done. But ultimately, they never fully took away the sins of the people. They covered them for a time. But it always needed to be redone. It always had an inherent weakness in it. And so all this effort was lost on them. And, and the fact even that the, the nation of Israel would, would do these things, and what they ended up doing as a people is get, they got caught up in the ritual itself. Okay, they got caught up in actually doing the things. And by the time you come to Jesus and the temple worship there, you can see that, man, they they don't actually want to know what God is doing around them. They're just busy with doing the works of the temple itself. And N.T. Wright puts it this way in his book, uh, Simply Jesus. He says this, The temple, as many other first century Jews recognized, was in the wrong hands and had come to symbolize the wrong things. It was, for a start, a place where many... For many Jews that stank of commercial oppression. And the temple had come to symbolize the nationalist movement that had led many Jews to revolt against pagan oppression in the past and would lean them to do so once more. So the temple, it wasn't even this place where they were like seeking God or they, they wanted to um, come to know him. It was like laws, it was rituals, it was symbolism, it was. Um, national pride it was like a rallying cry for them to somehow get rid of Rome you know it was like all the things that it was not meant to be and it also at the same time didn't actually take care of the sin problem okay so remember the context here again he's saying you want to go back to that it never did what we needed it to do to begin with so why are you going to go back to doing something that has inherent weakness in it and so What does he say? He says, the the theme of the book, he says, there's a better way. There's a better way. And the better way is actually Jesus. So look at verse 11, 11 through 14 here. It says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places Not by means of the blood of the goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing the eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So he's saying here, man, this is the better way, actually. The better and more complete way is the work that Christ did. The work of Jesus on the cross. And so, what is it that... Was this just all symbolism in the Old Testament? Or was this like reality? Or like, what what was going on here? What is God doing? And there's a a number of different ways. Like, if you look in... um, systematic theology books, you know, there's different ways of understanding what is actually happening here. The two big ones are, like, was this a a substitution? Like, was Christ and was the Old Testament a substitute for us? And substitutionary atonement basically means, like, there is a debt to be paid because of sin, and God needs that paid, and so something needs to be in the place of our debt, right? And so, the animal sacrifice would partially do it, but now Christ fully does it. Another view would be that um, it's called Christus Victor, okay? And this one basically says that Christ is the victor, that Christ has come. And the Old Testament sacrificial system was simply symbolic. It was just a an appeasement, I guess, that you know God allowed this to happen. But the true image is actually in Christ, and he has been victorious over sin and death, okay? And so some would say it's the first, some would say it's the second. I actually think it's a little bit of both, okay? And not just because I'm Canadian and I like to have peace with everything, okay? But I think it, I think it really is both, that Christ has defeated evil. He has conquered over the principalities and the power. Satan actually thought that he was going to destroy Christ on the cross, and the resurrection blew that out of the water, And we celebrate that every Easter and every Sunday, literally. But Christ was also our substitute. Christ took our place. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, a little bit further down in the text. It says this. It says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Sorry, that's verse 23. Verse 22 says, Indeed, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the author says here, listen, you cannot have the forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. But the the blood that was shed of animals, bulls, goats, those... Those are not perfect perfect sacrifices. It took something greater. It took something better. And so the author here is trying us to get us to see that Jesus is that better. Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. And his blood, his spilt blood, was literally necessary. It had purpose behind it. It wasn't just symbolic. It had meaning behind it. And I think Isaiah 53 captures this beautifully. It says this in verse 6. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed. This is talking about Christ. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So Christ was for us literally a sacrifice. But it wasn't one that, um, you know, it wasn't like, cosmic child abuse, you know, it wasn't like God saying, okay, Jesus, you're going to be, I'm going to beat you down. What we see actually is that it was willing sacrifice. And Jesus himself says, there is no greater love than a man to give himself for another, right? And that's exactly what Jesus did. He willingly laid down his life for us. Nobody made him do it. Nobody forced him, you know, kind of Arm behind the back, it was like no, he went through this willingly for us, so though Israel was kind of lost in the symbolism of the tabernacle, we are reminded and and we are i mean thankfully, we have these texts even to help clarify for us what was actually going on here. It was all centered on Christ, everything was pointing to Jesus. And so what's the point here? And we didn't plan this, but Twila's um, confession time and even the songs um, just all centered around the same thing, and it comes down to the heart, okay? What the sacrificial system really was all about, and the work that God is always doing through the person of Christ is a work of our hearts. And so Psalm 51, 16 says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Okay, this is David, okay, with the sacrificial system existing. He's seeing it in his city happening every single day. He sees his nation centered around this in Jerusalem. This is what he's writing. This is what he's saying. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. But then verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God. This is what God is looking for. This is what the sacrificial system was all about. It was about people acknowledging their sin and their brokenness and a a loving, gracious, merciful God saying, I want to be with you. I'm gonna make a way for you. And and people saying, God, I can't do this. I, I put my trust in you. It's a contrite heart. And I was listening to this song uh, yesterday. Um, I think it's actually an old chorus. or You know the song Hosanna? I think like Hillsong did it, has done a new version. I think it's an oldie though, right? Technically, it's a, you know, it's like an old chorus. Okay, I probably sang it in the 90s maybe. I don't know when it was written. But um, in there, as I was listening, listening to that song, it has this line that says, Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. That's what David's talking about, the sin that breaks God's heart, and us recognizing that and, and getting a sense of that at a at a heart level. And so this is what the author is trying to get the, the audience there to see, that we have a, a, a greater high priest. We have a, a greater sacrifice that is for us, and it's totally wrapped up in Christ. And so what's the result of it? Let's, let's close with this um, Verse 14 there says this, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So look at three things there. First is that we have a purified conscience. So the thing that the sacrificial system couldn't do that we saw in verse 9, it clearly said it cannot do that. It can't clear your conscience. Now this is saying the work that Christ has done actually can purify your conscience. That you can live as a believer not under the weight of guilt and shame. And, and that, I think that's a hard reality for us to, to live within. Because whether it's our... Our own selves, um, living under the weight of sins that we've done in the past. Things that we know that we've, we've felt guilt and shame for, whether rightly or wrongly, but we've felt those things with them. They, they're like still, they're like clinging onto us. They're like baggage that we're dragging down a hallway. Or maybe it's someone that we know who is still holding sin that we've committed against them, against us. So there's these accusations that are coming, or maybe it's Satan himself and, and just this evil system in the world around us, which the Word of God clearly says he is the accuser of the brethren. He is there saying, you've done this, you've done this, you've sinned this way, you've sinned that way, and we drag that along with us. And now the author is saying the work of Christ on the cross frees us from those things. Freedom from those things that just want to like anchor us down Freedom, and man, it's a it's a journey to to learn what that freedom actually feels like in the midst of life. Right, free from the sin, not because of what we've done, the good that we're not like a better Christian. It's freedom because of Christ's work, His finished alone. But also, look at this: freedom from dead works. Man, those are often linked together. Somehow, I'm feeling guilty. I'm feeling shame. So I need to be. I need to be a better Christian. I need to be a better person. Good works. So like I want to act right. I want to do the right things. Maybe even there's like cultural Christianese pressure around me. So I've got to like fall in line with that. Rather than saying, I want to live a, the life of a godly man, the life of a godly woman as the word of God tells me because of what Jesus has done for me. Not so that Jesus will give me something else. I have everything that I ever need because of what he's done. So now I just want to live for him. That's all I want to do is because of his work for me. So these dead works that, that don't do anything, they don't earn us any merit before God, we can let those go. To lastly, serve the living God, all right? Purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, so that our our lives can actually count. We can live in in freedom to 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 be a Christian, not just for like this one hour that we're together here, not just for the hour that we're in like missional family, but any time throughout the week wherever we go. Now, I don't go to a lot of places, okay, not yet because of lockdown. But I actually got to I got to go out this week. I went to the dentist, okay, <laughs> so. I don't know if that's like getting out or going into prison, but anyways, you know, I was still behind a glass door. Okay, they close, they lock you in. But the the dental hygienist that I had was just like super chatty. Okay, which is kind of hard when you're in the middle of getting your teeth scraped. And um, but she was uh, everything took a little bit longer, so we actually had moments to like talk and you know, it came out really quick that I was you know I'm a pastor, and so I got to just talk about church and and that church life and. Um, she was just asking about the church and mental health, and I, I didn't get to share the gospel with her, okay? I know you're waiting for that. You're like, oh, man, how did this happen? You got, I didn't get to share the gospel with her. But I, I did feel a sense of, like, it's so good to talk to someone about God who's, I'm assuming, not a Christian. And I just thought, these are the opportunities. This is what we're talking about, like, freedom to live in between like teeth polishings, to be able to talk about church and God, just to be like total freedom for me to be who I am, a follower of Jesus, wherever my life is going to take me. And that's actually the, the fullness of life that is the result of Christ's sacrifice for us. So this week, when we're tempted by other narratives, when we're tempted to go back to things that maybe are more comforting, but they're not actually based in the reality of what Jesus has done. Let's be reminded, just like these believers uh, were in chapter 9, that God wants to be with us, and he's actually made provision for us to enjoy his presence all the time. And so let's be the people of God. This is the opportunity. Like, we're starting to come out, right? We're starting to, like— springtime's coming and, um, man, I, I just believe God has great things for us, not because we're great, but because we're his people and he wants to be with us and he wants other people to, to join in this journey of the church. So let's, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for, um, thank you for the truth that we read here in Hebrews and for, the gift of your sacrifice for us, Lord, we acknowledge that we fall short, and um, and yet your your grace and your love is is just infinite. And so, Lord, all we want to do this morning is say thank you, and we pray that the truths of these um, scriptures would come to life in our hearts and in our minds, and would be on display for our family, for our loved ones, for our neighbors, and for our coworkers to see.